Hello, and welcome to Soothing Pods Sleep Stories. My name is Chris, and tonight I will be your guide as we join Phileas Fogg and Jean Passapartal on their travels around the world, a journey unheard of in its time. We'll join them on sleepy train rides, aboard ocean liners, traversing the sparkling seas, and even on elephants' backs across India. This retelling of Jules Verne's classic novel will take you on a journey through time and over incredible landscapes and old cities that will help guide you to a night of peaceful, relaxing sleep. Before we begin, however, let us take a moment to unwind and find peace and comfort in the place that we're in, here and now. Close your eyes and allow your body to sink into the mattress beneath you. There are no obligations here. There is no to-do list. Right now, you can close your eyes and simply be. Notice the comfort of the plush mattress beneath you, how it cradles your body and invites it to completely and utterly let go of any tension it may be carrying. Notice the pillow beneath your head, providing you with a soft place for your thoughts to wind down and your emotions to lull into a space of calmness and serenity. For a moment, allow your imagination to slowly wander. At first, you aren't sure where you are. You feel calm and at ease, and the air around you makes you feel even more secure. You take a deep breath in and out. With the fragrant breeze as your guide, where you are. The air smells fresh and clean, like new cotton clothes that have been hung out on a line in the sunshine to dry. You feel as though you can practically smell the sunshine in the air, but there's also an earthy smell the smell of soil and loam that is resting in the shadows of the sun. There's the citrusy, fresh smell of trees that are towering above your head. And you can smell the ferns that linger on the forest floor, dancing and swaying in the gentle woodland wind. The sun shines down on your face, peeking through the canopy of trees to reach you. Even with your eyes closed, you can practically feel the motion of the trees above you as they endlessly sway left to right and right to left. With each individual leaf twirling and swirling as it pleases, you can feel their shadows sweep across your face on occasion. The breeze brushes against your arms, 
keeping the temperature just perfect and refreshing even with the sun rays peeking through the trees. And that isn't the only thing keeping you refreshed. Now that you can feel the breeze on your skin, the sun on your face, and smell the stunning aromas in the forest air, you become aware that you aren't stationary. You are slowly drifting. You notice the sounds of water around you. The babbling brook deep within a forest, untouched by human hands. And as this river whisks you away, you notice something rather miraculous happening. Your hands drift in the water, cooling your body and enhancing the sensation of freshness. And, as they do, the sun rays seem to reach specific parts of your body, hidden by the leaves on the other. First, the sunlight gently reaches your head. The warmth of its rays softens your face, urging you to not squeeze your eyes shut, but to let your eyelids relax easily. You feel your tongue relax, and the muscles around your mouth untense giving you more space to breathe and taking away tension you may have been carrying there. Your teeth unclench softly and your jaw drifts down to a more natural position. Then the sun rays reach your torso. You feel their warmth sink into your skin, melting away any pressure or heaviness you've been carrying there. When you breathe in now, you feel more space in your lungs. Your breath is deeper, slower, more nourishing. Your heart relaxes not bound by any pressure or stress urging it to move faster. It settles into a leisurely pace, calming you even more. Then you feel the sunlight on your arms and legs. It reminds you that there are no battles to be fought tonight. There is no reason for your body to be rigid. Your hands untense and fall into a natural position on the mattress, and your legs do the same. With this newfound comfort and relaxation, they seem to sink deeper deeper still into the mattress beneath you. Every bit of you, from the tips of your toes to the top of your head, is calm and relaxed. If you ever feel any tension or pressure returning, know that you can come back to this exercise. You can always let the sunlight warm your skin and comfort you into sleep. Now that we have taken a moment to relax and find comfort in the place that we are in, here and now, let us begin our story. Mr. Phileas Fogg 
was a peculiar fellow in London society. He was a wealthy gentleman, about forty years of age. He wasn't like most people of his class. He had no wife, nor any children, and he didn't spend his time at parties or luxurious events that were often held around London. Even in the company of other people, he was a rather solitary and private man, keen on keeping his personal and private life to himself. Few people, if any, understood the intricacies of Phileas Fogg. His life, his hopes, his dreams, or his views of the world, any time he did speak to people, he often spoke of the world, detailing stories about distant lands and beautiful places. And yet, everyone was sure he himself had never traveled, despite having the funds to do so. Every day, Phileas Fogg would go to the Reform Club, a gentleman's social club for the wealthy elite men of London society. He spent nearly all day there, eating his lavish breakfast and talking with the other men until well into the afternoon. And though he spent all day there, the men who spent that time with him never came away knowing more about Phileas. One particular day, Phileas Fogg sat at the Reform Club, eating his wonderful breakfast of fried eggs, sausage, and beans on crisp toast. He paged through a newspaper as he did so, sipping his black coffee and listening to the other men in the club as they talked with one another. He joined in the conversation on this day, feeling hopeful and awake as the sun shone brightly beyond the tall windows, casting rays across the club floor. Ralph, another more talkative member of the club, leaned in closer to tell everyone the news he had heard of a robbery. Apparently, someone had robbed the Bank of England the previous night, stealing 55,000 pounds. But the most incredible part is that the man was not part of a band of robbers, nor did he appear to be a typical thief himself. He was a gentleman, a man dressed to the nines and clearly well off. I wonder how far the thief could have gotten, one of the members of the club remarked stirring his fragrant Earl Grey tea with a click-click of his silver spoon. Another member smiled and chimed. The world is a big place. He could have gone anywhere. Mr. Fogg folded his newspaper and set it aside with a grin on his face, intrigued by the conversation. He added, the world has become much smaller lately. He went on to discuss the completed construction of a new railway across the Indian continent. A railway that the Daily Telegraph suggested would allow people to travel around the world with ease in 80 days. 
the other men of the club rolled their eyes and laughed. They insisted that there was no way a man could circumnavigate the globe in 80 days. Certainly, the 80-day estimates didn't account for weather, shipwrecks, or any other accidents that were sure to occur on a journey of such massive proportions. But Mr. Fogg disagreed. Shaking his head, and assuring the men that such incidents had been included in the 80-day estimate. One of the club members, Mr. Stewart, laughed at Mr. Fogg and rolled his eyes as he chimed. I'd like to see you do it, Mr. Fogg. The other men laughed, but Mr. Fogg didn't even miss a beat before telling Stewart but he would love to do it, and he had no doubt that he would be able to. In fact, he was willing to bet 20,000 pounds that he could circumnavigate the globe in 80 days. The men in the club fell silent, shocked by such a statement, confident. Andrew Stewart put out his hand, Agreeing to the bet, Mr. Fogg shook his hand and left the club immediately, eager to leave for the journey at once. Phileas Fogg returned to his impressive home in the centre of London. There, his French valet, Jean Passepartout, awaited him. Jean was a cheery, talkative and proud man, quite the opposite of Mr. Fogg. He rarely viewed things seriously, and often found himself joking around with other people in the neighborhood. He wasn't one to keep secrets or hide anything about his personality or life, which made him an odd choice to be the servant of a man as protective and quiet as Mr. Fogg. When Fogg told Passepartout to pack bags for their journey, Passepartout was rather astounded. He did not truly believe it would be possible to make it around the world in 80 days, but... The thought of the adventure excited him. He could practically smell the fresh tea and spices in India. He could already feel the breeze whisking off the snow-capped mountains of Japan. He could feel the sun of the southwest kissing his skin. Passepartout got to work packing small carpet bags. They planned to buy clothes along the journey, clothes that would certainly remind them of this incredible adventure for the rest of their lives. That same evening, they set sail out of England, starting their journey around the world. Back in London, the news of their departure spread across the cobblestone streets like wildfire. People placed their own bets on whether the journey was possible or not. The excitement about such a grand adventure was palpable, and it cast sparks of inspiration around the city. But, Justice Fogg and Passepartout set off on their journey. The police commissioner in London received a rather strange telegram. A telegram accusing Mr. Fogg of being the man behind the robbery of the Bank of England. At first, such a thing didn't seem possible. 
But, as the police commissioner thought about it, more and more pieces of the puzzle started to come together. Mr. Fogg had fled England rather quickly. He was a solitary, secretive man. He was a man that expressed no interest and took no delight in bets. But now, he was traveling around the world because of one. The police commissioner suspected that Mr. Fogg had set out on this journey simply to elude detectives. But he knew from that moment that there was no way he was going to allow it. He was determined to catch Mr. Fogg, no matter where he was traveling. After catching an 8.45 evening train to Dover, Passepartout's and Fogg's journey truly began. Fogg started a strict, accurate log of the places and time that they would travel, allowing him to keep track of time, even as they'd cross several time zones. When they landed in France, they climbed aboard a train to take them through the countryside and down through Italy. Climbing aboard the mahogany train, Passepartout found himself in awe before it was even moving. Fogg had not skimped on paying for accommodations for this trip, and the train was one of the finest that Passepartout had ever seen. He settled into the plush seat and watched in wonder as the world drifted past him. France had been his home for most of his life, but it had never looked like this before. The train cut through the vast countryside, parts of the country that few people had laid eyes on. He felt as though he was living in a painting, watching works of art fly by. They passed through lush landscapes of northern France, forests where the sunlight flickered all around them, where birds flew from tree to tree overhead, soaking in the beautiful day as they sang their songs into the universe. Of course, Passepartout Fogg could not hear their song clearly, but they adored watching their feathers glow gold from the penetrating sun as they flew. Then they crossed into the mountains and hills of central and eastern France. The train lazily made its way through the lush, expansive lavender fields. They blanketed the large fields with a stunning light purple haze, a haze that shimmered and danced in the wind. Passepartout opened the window and took a deep breath of the air, soaking in the relaxing smell of the lavender as it rolled off the flowers. He knew there was a long trip ahead of them. A long trip that was due to be stressful from time to time. And yet, Passepartout felt completely at ease. He felt as though the excitement and beauty of the travel 
far outweighed the stress and the threat of losing the bet. No matter what happened, this trip was to be the best of his life. When the train entered Italy, Passepartout looked out the window at the massive Alps with tears rimming his eyes. It was one of the most spectacular sights he had ever seen. The mountains were so grand, they seemed to scrape the clouds in the sky. Some of the mountain tops even disappeared behind them. Mr. Fogg calmly drank his posh tea in a thin, delicate china cup as he watched the world whip by outside the window. He meticulously looked at a worn map of the world and plotted their route, determined to make this trip run on time. When they finally reached southeast Italy and the coast of the Adriatic Sea, they stepped off the train in the harbour town of Brindisi. The smell of the sea was briny, invigorating, and oh so inviting. Passepartout was excited to see the open seas after so long without seeing it. And Fogg reminded him, with a condescending smile, that they would be seeing plenty of seas together, that was for sure. The two climbed aboard a steamer ship known as the Mongolia, a ship where they secured the finest accommodations that money could buy. When their steamer arrived at the seaport city of Suez, Egypt, Passepartout was the first to step off the boat. The dry desert air was a shock to his system at first. There was not a drop of humidity, and the air itself smelled of fresh fruit, palm trees, of seasonings and fragrant spices that he himself had never encountered before. He hurried to the British consult's office, determined to get Mr. Fogg's passport stamped with a visa in order to prove that they actually had made their way around the world. Little did he know, the other man standing in the consul's office was none other than Mr. Fix, a detective sent to apprehend the man who stole the money from the Bank of England. After much talking with Passepartout, Detective Fix became even more sure that Mr. Fogg was, indeed, the person who they suspected of stealing the money from the Bank of England. Determined to catch him, he asked the consul to send a letter to London to get a warrant for Mr. Fogg's arrest, so Detective Fix could arrest him as soon as they reached Bombay. And it appeared that Mr. Fogg and Passepartout would be reaching Bombay way ahead of schedule. Wanting to ensure he was able to win the bet, Fogg offered the engineer of the ship a large sum of money to ensure they made it ahead of time. However, after the calm waters of the Red Sea, the Indian Ocean had other ideas. One morning, Fogg awakened to the ship rocking far more than usual. What was generally a gentle, soothing rocking had become something far more extreme. Enough shaking 
and rocking, but Mr. Fogg found himself clinging to the bed frame, trying to keep himself aloft on his plush bed. He rose to his feet and looked out the window to find the seas rather unforgiving. White caps blanketed the top of the massive waves that seemed to reach up to the dark grey and black sky. The storm clouds stretched to the far horizon, crackling and illuminating the turbulent seas with hot white lightning every few moments. Mr. Fogg could hear the rumble of the thunder just beyond the splashing of the waves and the creaking of the ship. The wind lashed at the sides of the ship, but Mr. Fogg was not at all worried. Even in the face of such a storm, he had an air of utter calm. Passepartout raced to his side, expecting to have to calm or help his master. But Mr. Fogg was at ease. He encouraged Passepartout to relax and enjoy the journey ahead of them. He continued on as he had their first few days on the ship. He ate four rather exotic meals a day and watched the storm out of his window. To kill time, he played entertaining card games with the fellow passengers, always making sure to let the other person win at least once. Passepartout often joined in on these card games, but on occasion, he'd find himself speaking to Detective Fix, who he was delighted to encounter on the boat. Passepartout had no knowledge of Fix's true intentions, so he just saw him as a fellow traveler, a man capable of making interesting conversations. In spite of the ferocious storm, the Mongolia arrived in Bombay two full days ahead of schedule. Mr. Fogg was pleased by this, but he was even more pleased when he stepped out onto the streets of Bombay and saw them in all their glory. The first thing he noticed were the vibrant colors seeping from every road and building, streets leading to vast, vibrant marketplaces, people dressed in all colors of the rainbow, cooking food that was flavorful enough to make your mouth water in mere seconds. Passepartout was perhaps even more amazed than Mr. Fogg. They were due to take a train from Bombay, cross India, to Calcutta, which gave Passepartout more than enough time to enjoy the sights of Bombay. Passepartout set out alone, excited to see what unobserved beauties Bombay had to offer. He strolled the dirt streets admiring the soft red sand at his feet. He wandered through busy marketplaces, buying exquisite fabrics and seductive spices, and admiring the art that the locals had painstakingly made. But there was one thing that caught his eye above all else. On top of a hill, in the far distance, there was a temple, a brightly colored Hindu temple that seemed to glisten in the sun like a beacon. Transfixed by it, Passepartout made his way up to the temple 
to truly admire it in all its beauty. He pushed past a vibrant yellow cloth and found himself in the temple, full of intricate carvings and drawings. But as he looked upon the temple, it became clear that some people were not happy he was there. The group of Hindu people in the temple began to shout at Passepartout. One man ripped his shoes off and snapped at him. Unsure of what was angering them, Passepartout ran out of the temple, leaving his torn sandals and a bag full of things he bought at the market. People chased behind him, still yelling, and ordering him to come back. Passepartout ran like his life depended on it. When he reached the train, he doubled over beside Mr. Fogg, trying to catch his breath. He explained what had happened to Mr. Fogg who told Passepartout to keep himself out of trouble. Not realizing tourists are forbidden in Indian temples, he not only entered one, but also disobeyed a sacred law by wearing his shoes. But, off to the side, someone else heard the tale that Passepartout had told and it gave him exactly what he needed. Detective Figs realizes that Passepartout was not only unknowingly disrespectful, but he had also broken British law. Since the warrant for Mr. Fogg's arrest hadn't reached Bombay in time, Detective Figs had been looking for an excuse to apprehend Fogg. And, in Passepartout's admission, he had found it. Aboard the train, the Indian landscapes started unfurling before their astonished eyes. Passepartout gazed out the window in utter awe as they wound through the forests and jungles of India. The views were so lush and breathtaking, they nearly brought tears to his eyes. For the first time, he understood why Mr. Fogg had done this, and he believed in his mission. But the mission was not an easy one, and they were reminded of that when the train came to a sudden stop. They learned that the train tracks were not actually fully laid over a 50-mile stretch. A 50-mile stretch that they would have to traverse themselves before hopping back on the next section of the railway. Passepartout was startled by this, but Mr. Falk assured him they would make it in time. In a local village, the two managed to find a man with an elephant. After paying the man a large sum, they were able to convince him to take them across the big stretch to the other train station on the back of his elephant. As they rode across the countryside on the back of an elephant, they started developing a deeper connection with this beautiful land. Sleeping under the stars and observing different groups of people on their journey filled Passepartout's soul and his spirit. But one thing caught them by surprise. One day, they encountered a woman named Alda, being forced into a ceremony that would lead to her death. 
desperate to save her, and knowing that they were still 12 hours ahead of schedule, Mr. Falk and Passepartout set out to save her. Passepartout performed a clever distraction, scaring the other participants of the ceremony and giving Mr. Falk just enough time to rescue Aouda. Not having anywhere else to go until she reached a relative in Hong Kong, Aouda joined them as they continued making their way to the next section of the railway. Mr. Falk was thrilled to learn that Aouda was brilliant and charming. A regal woman with much knowledge about history and the world. They chatted as they continued to travel, growing closer and closer to one another. Finally, they arrived at the other section of track and continued on. But just before they stepped on their steamer in Calcutta that would take them to Hong Kong, they were interrupted by the local police. They were both put in handcuffs, told they were being arrested for violating a consecrated religious place. Passepartout entering the pagoda would result in a 15-day prison stay, which was given to Mr. Fogg as well, ensuring they wouldn't reach England within the 80-day deadline. Detective Figgs was thrilled his backup plan had worked, but was devastated when he learned that Mr. Fogg had quickly gotten out of jail sentencing by bribing the guards. When they arrived in the bustling, beautiful city of Hong Kong, they learned that Aouda's distant relative had moved to the vibrant tulip fields of Holland. Not wanting to abandon her in Hong Kong by herself, Mr. Fogg invited her to tag along, eager to have her join on his trip. And my, what a trip they still had before them. After Detective Fix failed in yet another attempt to arrest Mr. Fogg in Hong Kong, the final British territory, the four got on paddle steamer destined for San Francisco. Knowing he wouldn't have another chance to arrest them, Detective Fix joined them for the rest of their journey, so he'd be able to arrest them once they reached British soil. The long trip across the Pacific Ocean was a peaceful one. Mr. Fogg and Aouda spent much time sipping tea and gazing out across the star-dusted horizon, taking in the beauty of the vast ocean before them. They spent their time in relative peace, even as the 80-day deadline grew closer. Finally, they arrived in San Francisco. The beautiful harbor city was alive with music, and people from all over the world. A fairly modern city, it was brimming with new ideas and exciting creative energy. Though they would have liked to stay, they boarded the transcontinental train that would take them to New York. There were several serene days aboard the train as well. They gazed out the window at the rapidly changing landscape, the impossibly tall mountains on the west coast, the Sierra Nevada, and the Rockies, which seemed to reach up and brush their snow peaks across the baby blue sky. There were the prairies 
which were aglow in the golden light of the setting sun, and buzzing with the sound of grasshoppers and cicadas as they made their way through the wild world. There were winding rivers and bubbling streams, which calmed their hearts even with the end of their journey on the horizon. And there were bison, a massive, incredible herd of bison that were making their way across the tracks. The train stopped for quite some time to let them through, something that made both Passepartout and Fogg look at their watches with worry wavering in their eyes. But that wasn't their only problem crossing the country. A falling suspension bridge forced them to find an alternate route. After hopping aboard a wind-powered sledge to take them the rest of the way to Omaha, the group managed to get themselves on another train to New York City. The view out the window was mainly of trees and river valleys, but Alder soaked up each and every moment. It was so lush, so beautiful, so different from the equally beautiful landscape of her home country. When the group finally made it to New York, they discovered their ship had already sailed. Desperate to make it to Britain in time, Mr. Fogg found a steamship called the Henrietta that was destined for Bordeaux, France. Mr. Fogg tried to convince the captain to stop in Liverpool, but to no avail. However, Fogg, Passport 2, and Alder agreed to board the ship to Bordeaux with another plan in mind. Once aboard the ship, Mr. Fogg talked to the crew, convincing them to mutiny and take the ship to Liverpool instead. The mutiny was a roaring success, but the last leg of their journey was anything but. Pushing against the wind and rain of a hurricane, the boat ran out of fuel in mere days. At first, the situation appeared to be grim. But Mr. Fogg was able to see the light, and in it, find a solution. The crew burned all the wooden parts and furniture aboard the ship, giving them just enough fuel to reach Ireland. After taking a train to Dublin and a ferry to Liverpool, the three realized they would actually be able to make it back to London in time. Unfortunately, the minute they landed on English soil, Detective Fix was waiting for them with a warrant for Mr. Fogg's arrest. Mr. Fogg was devastated fearing that his chance of winning the bet was lost forever. Soon after his arrest, however, the truth was revealed. The real robber of the Bank of England, a man named James Strand, was apprehended. Mr. Fogg was released from jail and raced to London by train as quickly as he could. To his devastation, he learned he had arrived in the city five minutes too late. The next day, Mr. Fogg visited Alder. He apologized to the beautiful, intelligent woman profusely. Since he lost the wager, he wouldn't have the funds to support her. Auda gazed in his eyes, taking his hands in hers. She confessed her love to him 
the words rolling off her tongue as sweet and warm as honey. She didn't care if he was poor. She wanted to marry him. Despite the knowledge that he would be living in poverty, Mr. Fogg agreed. Passepartout went to a minister to inform him of the wedding. Finding light in all this darkness, but upon talking to him, he learned that the date was not December 22nd as they thought, but December 21st. Since they travelled eastward, their days were shortened by four minutes for each degree of longitude they crossed. They were a day ahead of London. Thrilled by this discovery, Mr. Fogg raced to the Reform Club and made it just in time to win his wager. He took the winnings with pride and told everyone of the beautiful journey he had been on, knowing he couldn't have done it without the rest of his party. He gave half the money to Passepartout and married Aouda. He lived the rest of his days in harmony and often talked about the incredible places they traveled through during their adventurous journey around the world in 80 days. I hope you have enjoyed this sleep story and it has brought you a night of peaceful, restful sleep. Please join me again tomorrow night for another sleep story. Until then, sweet dreams.